to say once again how very, very grateful I am to Seth and Waypoint and to Ryan for coming and for leading us in our discussion. Uh, this has been stimulating and challenging, and I believe it's been what uh, the church needs more of, um, which is to come together. Uh, as Ryan said, in unity, not because we are a community, but because we believe in the authority of the Word of God, and therefore we are united. With all of our differences, with all of our different backgrounds, with all of our different upbringings, and our different opinions and interpretations of things, we are united because we are in Christ. And that's great news. So, um, Seth, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to get off and listen, and that will be great. Father God, I thank you again for the chance to come and to fellowship with your people, and that your Holy Spirit is, is working in us to grow and to challenge us to speak in a postmodern culture the truth of you, uh, which is a truth that is never changing and is not subject to any man's judgment. Uh, may we be illumined by your Spirit and filled with your wisdom. Uh, give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church. Uh, may you bless and speak through Seth now that the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart would be humble and pleasing in your sight and that we, your church, would benefit from what he brings to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joseph. Um, I want to take a moment to just say thank you to First Presbyterian for letting us use your building. This has been a wonderful church, a wonderful venue. Um, and being our first one, we weren't sure how many people to expect as far as child care and, um, and as far as seats that we could hold. And so I approached Joseph about partnering with us. And um, what he said there at the end about being stimulating, that's really our heart uh, is, is to stimulate the church to re-engage in some of the more difficult issues facing the church and facing our culture. I, I say this at our church a lot. And so um, I hope that's been the case. I hope it stretches us. I hope it uh, causes us to think about things we don't usually have to think about. We need to be, be a voice in the culture once again that, that uh, can engage. So that's my heart. One of my other heart goals in this, and I'll say it now, is that... Um, Understanding postmodernism is important, and, and I've seen an error in myself that I've had to confess and confront, and, and I've seen it in the church at large. Is we, we hear the term postmodernism, we can analyze it and critique it and say it's false and, uh, and show where it's wrong and all this stuff, and we pat ourselves on the back and move on our way. It doesn't affect the church. And, and it's not true. It does affect the church, and it's, it's tearing up the society we live in. And so we can't just pat ourselves on the back because we can perceive the, the errors of these ways. Um, there's more work to do than that. And as Ryan spoke um, in this last session about engaging with people and working through their issues with them, that's really what my hope is of what comes out of all this. So I've got the task of preaching this last session on postmodernism and law. And as I spoke last night, it was difficult. The most difficult thing was to figure out what direction I want to take with this. Do I do a biblical uh, sermon-based kind of uh, series, or, or do I do a historical approach? And so I've kind of done both. Uh, I, I really have the desire to want to show you what postmodernism teaches and why, so that you can go home and when you turn on Fox News or CNN or whatever, you are able now to start identifying some of these things. And lo and behold, I had to add a slide into this presentation 
about an hour and a half before I came here because Fox News gave me the perfect illustration. It's, it's going on as we speak, in other words. And so, um, so that's my hope. So I, I decided to do, uh, uh, assume for the most part that you have a, a, a Christian view of law. I'm still going to cover it somewhat, but I've, I'm going to focus more on what postmodernism views uh, are concerning law. So with that, let's begin. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11, one of the greatest psalms, in my opinion, says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. There is so much packed into that uh, passage out of Psalm 19. But just to highlight those adjectives, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true and righteous. And the warnings, right? There's great reward in keeping them. The law of the Lord is good. Other scriptures testify of the blessings of the law. Blessings pronounced for those who delight in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1 through, uh, Psalm 1, 1 through 6. If you want to open your Bibles, you can read that portion of the Psalm with me. But there's blessing pronounced in connection with it. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1 opens up, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chafe that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So there's blessings pronounced for those who delight in the law of the Lord, who meditate on it, who walk and obey it. The contrast is made to the wicked who do not delight in the law of the Lord. And we're told that the Lord knows His way, the deviation from what is right. There's also a future hope and a future judgment pronounced in connection with this psalm. Same is true with Psalm 119, verses 1-8. through 8, And it opens up very similarly to Psalm 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. 
I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. As Ryan pointed out last night, every verse of Psalm 119 speaks about God's Word, His statutes, His rules, His testimonies, His precepts, His law. And all of it's good. All of it's beautiful. All of it's desirable. One other verse in Psalm 119 captures it very great. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. So that's just a quick... There are so many other verses that could speak about the blessing, the goodness, the righteousness of God's Word, His law. Those are just a few. So let's introduce with that the Christian view of what law is. First, the nature of law in general is law is the basic rule or principle by which actions of persons are directed. It's a measure or rule by which we are led to act or withheld from acting. There's a positive and a negative. That's the nature of any law in general. As Ryan was pointing out, God's law is good, it's right, it's pure. Why? Because it's based on who He is. That's all it can be. And so when God's law is directing us in a good way, it's bringing man to his proper end or means. That's the goal of law. Now obviously, the theological truths of man being a sinner, not being able to keep the law, come into play. But that doesn't make the law bad. The law is good. The law is right. The law is holy. The law is just. So the nature of law, that's what it's supposed to do. It's a basic rule or principle by which actions or persons are directed. How about the absolute nature as far as the moral obligation of law? Okay, Here's a Christian view of the absolute nature of it. First, law is an objective moral duty for all people. Now remember, we're just setting up a Christian view, but keep in mind, this is a contrast to what postmodernists think about law. We see law, especially moral law, as an objective moral duty for everyone. Every single point of that, objective, duty, and for everyone, a postmodernist would reject. They would say, no, it's subjective, as we've been talking about. It's not a duty, and it's not certainly for all people. If you were here for my first um, first session last night, um, well, I won't go back to that. I don't want to take time to do that. All right. Secondly, an eternal obligation, we believe. Uh, we believe that law is an eternal obligation for all times. And third, that law is a universal obligation for all places. So, law covers all people in all times, in all places. It's objective, it's eternal, it's universal. All bold claims for a Christian worldview and all claims that a postmodern worldview rejects. So right away, with hardly any work at all, we, we begin to see the dynamic contrast between a postmodern view of law, as far as we know of postmodernism, and a Christian view of law. Christian theologians through the centuries have, have pretty much delineated um, three to four types of law. First, they talk about the eternal law of God. Let me define what that is. We define the eternal law as this, the principle of the universe that lies behind the governance of all things. The other day I was listening to a uh, teaching on iTunes University um, from the University of Arizona on, on physics. And the title of the, the seminar was Rethinking Reality. So obviously with this coming up, it caught my attention. Rethinking Reality. Hmm. Well, and the guy was a, 
a major physicist, very well educated, and he began speaking of physics not as anything but law. They are laws. And so we can see, very Christian or non-Christian, you can look into the universe and see that there are laws that govern the universe. In fact, one scientist said that you can write down on one sheet of paper, actually a half sheet of paper, the seven or ten laws that govern the entire universe. And he wasn't a Christian. And so scientists can look into creation and say, the law, there's laws that govern physical reality. Well, that's part of the eternal law. Eternal law is the source and the exemplar or example of all other law. All, all other kinds of law flow from God's eternal law. So how we would define it is this, the eternal mind of God conceived and determined all that would be and how it would be run. So it goes without saying the Christian worldview holds that law can be seen everywhere in creation, from physical realms to societal realms to the moral realms of life, as well as even the rational realm of life. This is an area, again, I had spoken about in our church, I may have mentioned last night, that we don't teach logic anymore in schools. Um, and so this, what I'm about to say, probably surprised some people, but there are undeniable rational laws that govern man's thinking. Now, a postmodernist says we create those. No, you don't. Law of non-contradiction, law of identity, law of excluded middle, those things are not created things. You can't deny them without using them. They are part of the nature of reality. They govern how people think. It's part of God's creation. He created us as rational people in His image. Why? So that we could understand His creation. So there are rational laws that are undeniable. So every aspect of life, we find law. And it all flows from eternal law. Second aspect of law or tradition of law that Christian worldview holds to is natural law. Moral law would be included in, in natural law. Natural law, we say, is the human participation in God's eternal law. In other words, it is the law by which what can be known about God is made plain to us. This is out of Romans 1. Because God has shown it to us through what has been made. There are truths about God, namely His nature, His eternal power, that we can look at nature and come to conclusions about Him. That's part of natural law. And I'll say this, because some churches will say, no, you can't. Yes, you can. You can view creation and come to conclusions about God. You can know His power and His eternal nature. But Paul says we suppress that in unrighteousness. We don't want to know those things. They're inconvenient for us, as we've been talking about, because we want to be God. Nature declares only one God. Also in Romans 2.15, Paul talks about the moral law being written on our conscience. Third aspect of a Christian view of law is civil law. So eternal law, then natural law, civil law is under that. Civil law is the attempt by humans, sinful humans, to make practical applications and laws based on natural law. It particular, particularizes the general principles of natural law. 
And as the third point, not all civil law carries the authority of natural or eternal law. In other words, civil laws can be made that are wrong. Their application of natural law from the eternal law is wrong. Let me give you an example. When communist China says, as a law, you cannot preach the gospel, the church says, yes, we can. We have authority from God over this law. It's an unjust law. And so, civil law of all laws, in that sense, is least weighty. Nonetheless, the Lord exhorts us to keep it, so far as it's righteous. Okay? So I'm not advocating that you go break the law or anything like that, but there are going to be laws that the church must break. I love uh, the, the story of Brother Andrew. If you remember Brother Andrew, the Bible smuggler, how he would smuggle Bibles into communist areas, and, and obviously they had laws against doing that, but what would he do? He'd trust God. He'd put Bibles on the, on the dashboard of his car and say, God, I believe you do want this, even though they say we don't want this. And he'd smuggle hundreds or thousands of Bibles in. So, a fourth one I didn't include in here that many theologians talk about is divine law. And I don't include it here because it's, it's a whole nother issue, but divine law would be that law that God has for the church. In particular, the law of the spirit of life setting us free from the law of sin and death, so to speak, is an example. So the Western legal tradition has been built recognizing this view of law. I have with me uh, a copy of our Declaration of Independence. If you haven't read it, hopefully you have. There you go. <laughs> I want to read part of it. I'm going to come back to this, but our own Declaration of Independence captures the natural law. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. And here's our declaration, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All that was based on eternal and natural law. Okay, So we have a very strong tradition of law. Here's what this professor, he was a former professor of law at Harvard Law School, Harold J. Berman said in no other terms than what we just defined. He said the structural integrity of law, its ongoingness, the eternalness, its religious roots coming from God, and its transcendent qualities. In other words, it's for all people everywhere at all times. It's transcendent. That's the Western legal system's roots. And it's the structural integrity of law. It's ongoing, it's religious, it's transcendent. But here's what he goes on to say. These views are rapidly disappearing from the minds of lawmakers, judges, lawyers, law teachers, and from the consciousness of the vast majority of citizens. 
The law is becoming fragmented, more subjective, geared more toward expediency and less to morality, concerned more with immediate consequences and less with consistency or continuity. The historical soil of the Western legal tradition is being washed away in the 20th century and the tradition itself is threatened with collapse. Strong statement by a man who was in the field. And I would contend, I think we're very close, if not there already. Okay. Last night, a summary of what postmodern sorry, postmodernism is, we saw that it rejects epistemological foundations, that is, how we know things. There are no foundations to knowledge. We create knowledge in the communities we exist in through the language we use. They reject a correspondence view of truth to reality, and they favor instead a coherence and pragmatic view. And they reject objectivity and meta-narratives. And we saw with the example John 3.16 is a meta-narrative. There are no claims that are objectively true for all people everywhere and all times. So, how does this affect law? Well, what I'm going to do for the rest of this... Uh, well, not the rest, but I want to focus on one postmodern thinker. He's the guy I focused on in my thesis. His name was Michael Foucault. Actually, if you say it in French, it's Michel Foucault but I don't feel comfortable calling Michael Michel. Michael Foucault was one of the leading postmodern thinkers. He was a French philosopher interested in the relationship between discourse or language and power. He was interested in institutions and the power that those institutions exert over the people they're over. This is what he was specifically asked who exercises power? How do they exercise it? And on whom do they exercise power? Ultimately, what he concludes is that law is the relation of those institutions and their language over any given institution or people group. So what he's saying to summarize, law is simply the language that those who are in power use to control. Does that make sense? This is what he says in his Discourse on Language. He says, I'm supposing that in every society, the production of language or discourse is at once controlled, selected, organized, and redistributed according to a certain number of procedures, whose role is to avert its power and its danger, to cope with chance events, to evade its ponderous awesome materiality. He gave an example in his writings of the doctors in the early uh, 1700s and, and 1800s, how uh, they would have their patients laid out on a table and the students would all gather around this patient. And usually it was a dead body and they'd cut the body open and the doctor would say, stomach. And the student was supposed to say, oh, okay, that's the stomach. Okay. Large intestine, kidney, whatever. And so the doctor, the one who's in authority, is communicating through his language to the pupils he's over what counts as knowledge, what's true. That's the illustration he uses. It was controlled, it was selected, it was organized, and it was redistributed. 
He goes on to note that every society sets up rules of exclusion which deal with things that are prohibited. He identifies broadly three areas of prohibition. One, prohibition covering objects. Rituals, number two, including its surrounding circumstances. Third, the privileged and exclusive right to speak of any particular subject. And so, what he's starting to to build his case on as far as what he believes law to be is these institutions who are in power, they use their language to say what counts as true, what doesn't count as true, and they teach you those rules. You have to accept those rules, and those rules are meant to control what counts as knowledge and also prohibit things from counting. And so a Christian, for instance, in a church, our rules, according to Foucault, would be God is one God, not many. And the church has to agree to that. And that's how we control and organize what counts as knowledge in the church. He doesn't believe there's any objective reality about that. It's just a tool of power that an institution uses to control its people. And it's in every institution. He talks a lot about the penal system. He wrote a book called Discipline and Punish, which is, I don't encourage you to read it. But he says that social institutions such as the military, schools, hospitals, factories, mental health facilities, churches, and religious institutes in general are really just institutions put in place by those in power to control a society or to socially engineer them. The various social institutions Foucault identifies, are uh, those are the institutions as outside the penal system. The penal system itself is another institution, and it was tasked with disciplining and punishing those who break from what we say is right and wrong. But these other institutions, military, schools, hospitals, factories, mental health facilities, churches, everything, are, uh, are institutions that are outside of prisons, not meant to necessarily punish, but to control. And they organize around five principles. Spatialization, a place for everyone and everyone in his place where someone is indicates, I'm sorry, where someone is indicated who and what he is. Think of uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. How many of you guys have seen this version of Rudolph? How many of you showed your kids this version of Rudolph? <laughs> I have, and I, uh, I had to go to my youth group and say, okay, this was probably one of the earliest postmodern propaganda movies made. And so go watch this version of Rudolph, and you will start seeing these things. So this first point, spatialization. Do you remember the elf there, Hermie? What got Hermie in trouble? He wanted to be a dentist. But what do elves do? They make toys. And if you remember that funny line, the, the foreman elf said, we as elves are supposed to make toys and say hee-hee and ho-ho and important stuff like that. Remember that line? And he slams the door and walks out. But Hermie wanted to be a dentist. 
He was breaking from spatialization. So, what's Hermie do? He runs away. Same thing was happening with Rudolph. Santa comes into, uh, I can't remember Rudolph's dad's name anyway, comes into the cave, Rudolph's born, and Santa says, Nope, oh, I will not have a red-nosed reindeer flying on my sleigh team. He was outside of the spatialization. So they come together, and both of them meet and call themselves what? A couple of misfits. And then they sing this song. I'm going to read these lyrics to you. We're a couple of misfits. We're a couple of misfits. What's the matter with misfits? That's where we fit in. They don't fit in in these established spatialization areas that society has created. We're misfits. But then they go on. We're not Daffy and Dilly. Don't go round willy-nilly. Seems to us kind of silly that we don't fit in. Now here's the key postmodern line from this song. We may be different from the rest. Who decides the test of what is really best? You guys see the postmodernism all over that? I'll say it again. We may be different from the rest. Who decides the test for what is really best? That is postmodernism to a T. Who are you to say, I don't fit in? Are you the one who makes the categories of what counts? That's how they view society. Society says, here's the categories that you need to belong to or what fits in. And when you don't, you're penalized. Just like Rudolph and Hermie were. The second pinnacle, Foucault says, is they control everything. He gives the example of schools. And granted, schools aren't run this way anymore, but during Foucault's day, they were. Every minute of every day of a child's day at school was controlled. They tell you what time you got to get there. They have clocks counting off every second, controlling every activity. They fill your calendar. They daily structure your life. And more explicit is the prison. What do prisoners get to do? Even their Free time is controlled, right? That's, if you, the, the prison might be a more concrete example of what he's saying here. The prison literally structures the prisoners every minute. Tells them what time to wake up, when they can shower, when they can eat, when they can go outside, what time they've got to go to bed. It's absolute control. Well, Foucault and postmodern thinkers see society as a whole doing that. In every institution, the legal system was simply meant to punish those who dared break from it. Again, think of Hermie the Elf and his rebellion against the foreman elf for daring to want to be a dentist. The third one Foucault identifies is repetitive exercises. So they categorize you, they control every minute, and then they get you doing repetitive exercises. They're both standardized exercises for society to obey and individualized to the individual's rate of progress. For example, those who complete tasks are rewarded. Those who don't, aren't. Ryan spoke yesterday about workers today, right? And how when they put their hand to a job and find out, ooh, this is hard, I don't really want to do it, what do they do? They quit. 
There's no idea anymore of faithfulness or hard work. And it's simply being right or needed to be done. So what that's a rebellion against is this idea, these repetitive exercises. The repetition is meant to create automatic obedience to determined stimuli. Now you see, he's got a pretty diabolical view of law, right? He sees institutions in our society as wanting to control and, and just make you an automaton to what it says is right and what we need to be. I came back to this slide and, and, and made those notes about Ryan's presentation last night on authority because that really is the root of this issue. It's a rejection of authority and the exaltation of self to be the, the sole authority in anyone's life. The fourth aspect of Foucault's system is detailed hierarchies. So those in power, they spatialize you, they control you, they program you, and they have detailed hierarchies set up in complex chains of authority and training. Again, think of the military. Think of schools. Think of hospitals. There's always some, uh, there's even, even in a family, right? The old school way, so to speak, of a family. There, the husband is the head of a household and a wife. That's a hierarchy to a postmodern. It's all meant to control people. Each level of the hierarchy keeps watch over those under them. They think, um, like I said, of school administration, government, military chain of command, so on and so forth. So these hierarchies are simply in place to keep us uh, who have the power in power and to keep those who are under authority in check. This is one of the core aspects of postmodernism across the board is the rejection of institutionalized authority. This is why postmodernists hate authoritative structures in church. I, I focus my thesis stuff on, on postmodernism in the church. And so uh, when you read uh, postmodern theologians, this thought is everywhere. One of the ways you see it in a postmodern church is, is that they remove this right here. They remove the pulpit. Why? Because the pulpit is an authoritative projection over you. In fact, me being elevated above you in a postmodern's mind is unacceptable because it's exalting me who has wisdom and I'm speaking it down to you who need to know it. That's how they view it. So a postmodern church will do this. They'll get rid of the pulpit and they'll bring the pastor down here on your level and maybe even put a seat under him so that I'm just one of you speaking amongst peers. They want to erase any kind of authoritative structure. Does that make sense? That's what this is talking about. They hate institutionalized authority. Because as we've already established in looking at postmodernism, self is the only authority, and no one is over me. So any institution that strips man of his absolute autonomy, unless the individual, as Ryan said last night, decides to allow that authority over him, is completely rejected. No institution should have power over the individual to tell them what to do or to speak over them. This is why, again, Ryan brought this up in, in one of the pastors I believe he's, he's met in Santa Fe. Um, I, and maybe you didn't share this. Maybe you just shared this with me. I can't remember. But, um, you know, we're, they're just coaches. You know, we're, we're just 
Uh, I'm not speaking over you. I'm, I'm sharing my story with you. Everything is de-elevated down to we're all common in this together. So it's become the American idea of what freedom means, by the way, too. Um, these hierarchies, these systems of control are completely jettisoned, and we've redefined freedom to mean freedom to do whatever I want to do. That's never the American, at least, idea of freedom. It's certainly not the Christian idea of freedom. Normalizing judgments. Here's the fifth aspect of Foucault's idea of institutions outside of the penal system. They normalize your judgments. So here's the social engineering. Those in power run a constant analysis of whether the one under authority deviates in any way from what they define as normal. Those in power put limits on behavior and decide what is acceptable. Again, think of Hermie. Hermie deviated from what elves were supposed to be. And so he was cast out of the group, or rather left the group. Okay, That's why I say that that version of Rudolph uh, is perfect postmodern illustration. So power and dialogue. Foucault, in summary, says this. He explains how we have knowledge, saying it's through the production of discourse and those who are in a position of authority and power who decide for whatever discipline they may represent what counts as knowledge. This is across the board. Science, school, medicine, um, military, government, ecclesiastical. Whoever is in power controls the language and says what counts as true and not true. So that's, that helps us to see why this postmodern generation is so deeply distrusting of institutions. And I hope you begin to see this. Because everywhere you go, when you recognize this truth about postmodernism, everywhere you go, if you have any kind of structure, they will be deeply distrusting of it. And this is why. They view it as a means of control. Well, from Foucault... Uh, he was so influential on so many people. A movement called the Critical Legal Studies Movement came very shortly after, and maybe concurrently taking his, his words. Critical Legal Studies is a postmodern experiment. Um, and they're legal theorists who hold to neo-Marxist political orientation. They believe that we do not grasp reality. We construct reality, just like we've been talking good postmodernism believes. They believe that all knowledge depends on social convention, especially language, and that's the, the building blocks of law. So again, going back to our scriptures that we began reading, the building blocks of law for us is what? God Himself. That's where all law derives from. Not so with the postmodernists. The building blocks of law is man and the language we decide to say what's right and wrong for a society. So critical legal study uh, theorists hold to exactly what Foucault spoke about. There's no foundation for knowledge, only power. Because there's no foundation in truth or reality, law does not deserve our allegiance. Rather, law is reduced to simply politics. It's senseless in, in these legal theorists' minds to talk about right and wrong, Moral or immoral. 
All law is, in other words, is politics. There's nothing right or wrong about it. It's politics. Now, this is going to start getting scary for you, potentially. If there's this, this is actually a quote from one of the uh, adherents, um, contributing professor of this movement. If there's a single theme in critical legal studies, it is that, that law is an instrument of social, economic, and political domination. Strong language. All law is is meant to dominate you in every area of your life. Not what the scripture says that law is good, law is right, it's just, it's peaceful. No, it's domination. Both in the sense of furthering the concrete interests of the dominators and in that of legitimating the existing order. Law is whatever society's most powerful cultural group makes it. When the different cultural presuppositions of a different group clash, no group has an objective basis from which to demand another group's obedience to the law. Now that is frightening. It's a direct route to chaos and anarchy. Direct route to it. In other words, there's the group who's in power now. And by the way, you might have seen this. I had a, a girl from our church last night talk to me about this. She's taking a history course right now. And this history um, is simply saying that, that America needs to be rethunk, basically, because it's inherited its Judeo-Christian, European, white, male perspective. And all that is wrong. And so those who are in power over our legal system in America are Judeo-Christian roots, male, white. Well, that excludes all these other groups. But what happens when two different groups clash? There's no basis on which to work something out. There's no objective standard that we can appeal to. Leads to anarchy and chaos. Here's the four principles of the critical legal studies. One, the law seeks wrongful legitimation. What, it, what they mean by that is, when we say that law speaks to an objective moral reality, and as Christians, we believe that objective standard is God Himself, the nature of God, we're legitimizing our laws based on the nature of God. They say that's wrong. You can't appeal to God. We don't even know if He exists. So it seeks wrongful legitimation. It's not made legitimate by whether it conforms to some kind of moral absolute, they contend. It's made legitimate by the ruling power who says it's legitimate. So literally, what, what they're saying, this is how ridiculous it could get. I'm not saying it's here yet, with that first point. If a ruling power came into a society and said, um, let me think of something crazy. You know, elephants are going to rule the world. You know, they're, we're going to elect the first elephant president, whatever. And that, that, that's going to happen. That's true. That's real then that counts as power, that counts as reality, that legitimates it. Well, whatever the ruling power says is so, that's what's so. The law, secondly, is plagued by contradictions. They argue that every legal decision made, an equal opposite legal decision could be made. Ryan gave the excellent example of the, the um, APA, I think is what you called it, the rulings on homosexuality. 
That's a perfect example. At one point in our history, it was sinful. Well, then it became a sickness. Now it's celebrated. That's the example of the contradictions of law. Third, there are no foundational principles to law. Now, that's a direct challenge, obviously, to the Christian worldview of law. Foundational principle is God Himself. The idea of rational law and foundational principles to law are social constructs. This is why I read the Declaration of Independence. I hope you see where this is going, by the way. At least for America, what's happening to our whole, I mean, everything in society? Just throw this out the window. That's what's happening. There's no foundational principles to law. Well, our Declaration of Independence was made with the belief that there was. Something's going to have to give. Fourth, the law is not neutral. Here's the argument. The idea of law being neutral, or as is written on the Supreme Court building, justice for all, is a myth. In fact, that idea, justice for all, is scorned by postmodernists. Because law, they believe, is created by those in power, and so those who are under them are inherently subjected to uh, wicked things. Oops, I forgot to uh, make that large for you. So because, uh, because postmodernists don't believe that there is really such thing as law, what law becomes for them is politics. There's no rule of law anymore, it's just politics. And postmodern politics seeks to systematically dismantle and replace the ideas of the rule of law, which are based uh, both on natural law and divine law rooted in God in our legal tradition, as well as individual freedom and liberty. So as I said, rather law is simply politics, pure and simple. So here's the title, and, and I'm not going to say these titles as uh, to... to uh, try and divide us politically, these are the titles postmodernists have given to themselves. So when you hear progressive or leftist politics, those are actually the titles a postmodernist gives themselves. So I'm not casting political division. These are their own titles. Leftist politics or progressive politics is what postmodernism or where postmodernism is found. They seek to identify, postmodern politics seeks to identify social injustices. Ryan spoke on this a little bit. You, you see everywhere in our culture all of a sudden these social justice movements because what they're saying is this, those in power have created social injustices for all these minority groups and we need to rectify that. But they don't appeal to some natural law to do it. What they're going to do, we're going to get to this, they're going to replace those who are in power is their goal. So just as we saw in the very first session on what postmodernism is, a society constructs their reality through their language. Language is a tool by those who, in, who are in power to form and rule over a society. And because there's no such thing as a universal morality, nature, truth, or anything else, the oppressed groups who are in a society are liberated by transforming how we talk about it. 
And I'm going to give you some examples of what I mean. How many of you have noticed, for instance, how our language and how we talk about some of these issues has changed? Race, gender, sex. Instead of using, for instance, old puritanical language, they say, that regarded homosexuality as a sinful behavior, what they do? They change the language to say, no, it's gender identity or sexual orientation. See how all this language that you guys know is actually the postmodern re-engineering what counts as truth. So homosexuality is not talked as sinful. We change the language. How about abortion? At one point, we would say that's taking the life of an unborn child. Well, what's, how is it spoken of today? No, it's a woman's right over her body. Instead of socialism and communism being taken from the rich and redistributing it to the poor, now it's, no, they're just paying their fair share. All examples of how language is changed to create new truth. And by the way, it's not an overnight process, but they've been persistent, they've been very good and deliberate at it. So postmodernists take what's known as the neo-Marxist approach and try to identify oppressed groups in the society and then create social justice. Our system, our legal system, is corrupt and it's biased because law was written by those in power for their own purpose and their own interest. The oppressed groups identified, and this is again law in our government, we can't discriminate against people of race, gender, or sexual orientation. Because law is politics, postmodernists uh, try to identify all those groups. Our system is corrupt, and that group who's corrupted it is usually identified as white males from modern Europe with a Judeo-Christian background. And the oppressed groups identified include minorities, women, the poor, or anyone who is in any way oppressed due to race, gender, or sexual orientation. You guys have heard of this term, identity politics. Okay, Identity politics is postmodern politics. Here's a quote, identity politics seeks to advance the interests of particular groups in society that are perceived as victims of social injustice. Now the key, the identity of the oppressed group gives rise to a political basis around which they can unite. Let me give you some more. For example, radical feminists identified all women as victims of male oppression. Once they had established that case, then whatever was needed to free women from male domination is considered politically correct. Justifiable. Does that make sense? And that is applied to any oppressed group. As long as you can be identified as an oppressed group within our society, then anything is justified to save you from that oppression. Here's a little more direct quote from a feminist herself. In order to be revolutionary, feminist theories should be political tools, strategies for overcoming oppression in specific concrete situations. The goal then, now pay attention to this, the goal of feminist theories should be to develop strategic theories, not true theories and not false theories, 
but strategic theories. Why strategic? Because it's political. They're changing the authority. Doesn't matter if it's true or false. Isn't that the very thing that law is supposed to deal with? What's true and false? Doesn't matter anymore in a postmodern world if it's true or false. It only matters what the political means and end is. There's no right and wrong. Law is simply a political tool to accomplish our desired ends. And we can justify anything as politically necessary if we can strategically make a case. Now guys, if you pay attention to the news, this is going on daily. Daily. The same can be said of the social justice movements that we see. They seek to create social justice for oppressed groups in a society, but this is really simply politically necessary to justify their socialist desire to redistribute wealth. If they can identify you as an oppressed minority group, they've got a political case to justify socialism. Identity politics in the news today. This is what I was referring to earlier as an example that was given maybe um, five hours ago. Five hours old, maybe. So if you watch Fox News, you've probably seen a guy named David Webb on Fox News. He was interviewing with CNN anchor Ariva Martin. Ariva Martin is African American. And during a discussion about experience being more important than race when determining whether or not someone is qualified for a particular job. Now, that seems reasonable, right? Experience being necessary if you're going to apply for a job over race? I mean, well, here's what David Webb said. I've chosen to cross different parts of the media world, done the work so that I'm qualified to be in each one. I never considered my color the issue. I considered my qualifications the issue. Well, Reva Martin replied, that's a whole, uh, that's a whole another long conversation about white privilege. The things that you have the privilege of doing that people of color don't have the privilege of doing, she said. A dumbfounded web said this, how do I have the privilege of white privilege? Martin responded, David, by virtue of being a white male, you have white privilege. And David Webb said, Reva, I hate to break it to you, but you should have been better prepped. I'm black. That was today. (laughs) But do you see the folly of this kind of madness? This woman simply assumed he had white privilege. But he's black. This is how postmodern law just gets kooky. And it actually doesn't just get kooky, it becomes unjust. It replaces what they consider the power to be. No sense of justice. Well, this might be another one that you're familiar with. Recently happened. Judge Kavanaugh and his accuser. You remember this confirmation? It was painful to watch. A man who was accused of something could be true, could be false. But every means available investigated it, including the people this woman named, and everything said it was false. Did that matter whatsoever in his confirmation? No. Why? Because there is no right and wrong, only politics. Here's what Kavanaugh said 
after going through six background checks, plus the one more after these allegations came out, plus numerous eyewitness testimony refuting the testimony given by this woman, Kavanaugh said this was a calculated and orchestrated political hit. He's exactly right. It's all politics. His statement shows that there's something much deeper than malice by those who calculated and orchestrated it. What it shows is the rule of true justice and law means nothing to our political leaders. Political leaders are, are elected to uphold the law. When our political leaders say, it's irrelevant, what kind of shape are we in as a society? Now this should be terrifying to us. It's at the very top level now. Very top level. Now, if you don't believe me that, that our political leaders don't really believe this, well, maybe you remember this example. Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. I was a young boy. Clarence Thomas made it to the Supreme Court as well, but he was accused by Anita Hill of sexual improprieties. And I'm not going to visit that confirmation But I want to bring up a statement that was made during his confirmation by a woman, Susan Estrich, who's a legal theorist, a professor of law and political science at University of Southern California. Estrich was asked why she supported Anita Hill when Hill charged Clarence Thomas with sexual harassment, but she opposed Paula Jones when Paula Jones made sexual harassment cases or allegations against President Bill Clinton. Both made sexual harassment. Both were women. Supported one, not the other. Why? Susan Susan Estridge. Here's what her reply was. You believe in principle. I believe in politics. That's postmodern view of law. Law isn't principle, people. There's no right and wrong. Simply political posturing. And it's political posturing to achieve our desired end. Now, people who believe this, when they get control of the governing authority, you better watch out, as my brother said, because they hate Christian principles. And you will be their first target. Without a doubt. We already are in in many ways. When there's no principle behind law, Only politics, when there's no moral ought behind the laws we pass, we are in trouble. Law and justice. So, I want to bring up another example of how postmodernism is affecting law. There's a movement in our legal system to focus on treatment for an offender rather than serving justice to the offender. How many of you have had experience or seen this? What they need is treatment, education. Part of, it's part of the prison reform movement. Focus is turning, rather than punishment, which postmodernists don't believe you should, because there's no wrongs committed, only a violation of what we say is wrong. We need to rather educate and treat them. Now, before I go to this next slide, I don't want you to, want to think that I'm against treatment or education. I think some of those things can be helpful for violators. But it completely ignores the issue of justice which is what law is supposed to be about. Now, here's 
A very at-home example for us, Clovis. This was the young boy who at 16 years old walked into Clovis Library and killed two people. Nathaniel Jewett. This is our community here. Now I took what I'm about to read from the Eastern New Mexico newspaper, December 19th issue of 2018. I'm going to read it for you. So this is Nathaniel Jewett. He confessed. Now he confessed to nearly three dozen felony charges stemming from the shooting on August 28th. He confessed to it. He's admitting guilt. His defense lawyer, however, upon hearing the news from the judge that he would be charged or tried as an adult, indicated that he was extremely disappointed. Why? Because Jewett would not be afforded an opportunity at rehabilitation. And here's the quote from Stephen Taylor, his defense lawyer. He says, It's disappointing because we believe Nathaniel should at least have some shot at treatment. And up to this point, treatment has been positive for Nathaniel, and we have no reason to think that treatment won't continue to show progress. Maybe, maybe not. Irrelevant for the cause of justice. This man confessed to killing two people and shooting others. What's relevant at that point is justice. Do you see what's going on here? Now anybody who's been on the receiving end of a criminal, they know the angst that this causes when you've been violated. I can't imagine what the families of of the people that that young boy killed felt when that lawyer said that. Oh, this boy just needs treatment. That's all. No. Get him treatment. That's fine. He needs justice. And so do those families. This is postmodernism in Clovis, folks. So I don't know how much closer to reality we can get it. This is a good quote from David Noble, a good Christian worldview. He was at one time the head of Summit Ministries. He said this, To achieve their vision for the West, postmodernists must dismantle the present social, political, economic system, replacing the foundational ideas of individual liberty and the rule of law, which is based on God's moral order, with the concepts of identity politics and social injustice. So get ready. Identity politics, identifying those who are oppressed in our society, and social justice movements, but which we would have a hard time fighting against, right? The church wants to help the poor, not the way that postmodernists do. But it pulls at our heartstrings. We have a heart for them. It's going to get ramped up even more as postmodern theory takes root. So the postmodern worldview of law, a Christian critique, one, it's self-defeating. As Ryan pointed out last night, if postmodernism is, if postmodernism is true, then it's false. If there's no absolute law, then it's absolutely true that there's no absolutes. It's like saying this, you should never say never. Or you should always avoid saying always. There's absolutely no moral absolutes. It's self-defeating. What's really going on is they want to be the absolute, not God. 
And as Ryan just wonderfully expounded, when a sinful creature exalts himself to be both judge and determiner, that's scary. Because he can only act out what his nature will allow him to. We read all those scriptures at the beginning. The law of God is what? It's good. It's right. It brings peace. Not so in a postmodern world. It will be full of all kinds of dark, sinful things. Postmodernism has no basis upon which to make any assertion, let alone a law-like assertion. They know that. And so they don't really see any basis for law at all. Simply politics shows that what is really happening is the advent of a new law and lawgiver. It's really, it's not new. It's the same old one from the garden self. That's really what's going on. There's a progression in the book of Judges that I think is important to notice. And I wrote all the scriptures down. I, I, to save time, I'll just kind of walk you through it. When you read the end of the book of Joshua and, and, and then through the book of Judges, you see this progression, and I, I think we've gone through it. Joshua was a godly leader, and he led Israel into the nation right, to, to claim the inheritance and the promise. And at the end of the book of Joshua, he challenges the people, hey, if it's an evil thing to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Right? The people respond to Joshua, no, God is our God. We're going to serve Him. They make a covenant obligation. Well, you get to, that's the last chapter of Joshua. You get to the first chapter of Judges and they're already fudging. At first, they, they were told to dispel the inhabitants of the land. Well, what they did was actually, they didn't dispel them, but they put them in forced labor. That's good enough. And every tribe did it. Not one tribe obeyed the Lord. So an angel comes and rebukes them. They repent. That generation dies, and the very next phrase is, the next generation did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then that progression follows, right? That generation does what's evil, they're oppressed, God raises up a righteous judge to deliver them, bring them back to their covenant obligations, they're restored, then they sin again, so God raises up a judge, so on and so forth. So you see this pattern, God raising up judges to bring them back to truth. But then you get to about chapter 15 with the judge named Samson, who's corrupt himself. It's a bad step forward when your judges become corrupt. Well, then you get to the end of the book of Judges and what's it say? Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. People were doing evil. Then a judge is doing evil. Then everyone's doing it. I think America has gone through that progression. Now, what's next? On the social level, what will happen is the govern, government will be ruled by those who have the might. Not principle, but power. Here's what Stanley Fish said. He's a postmodernist professor. Must might make right? In a sense, the answer might give that I might give is yes. Since in the absence of a perspective independent of interpretation... Some interpretive perspective will always rule by virtue of having won out its competitors. It's not that whether an interpretation of something is right or wrong. It's simply, who's got the majority power? This is why, in my opinion, 
you see the progressives, politicians, furious at the political outcome that happened. Because they, they know they need the might. They didn't get it. And they're furious. So given the fact that moral absolutes are unavoidable, what then is really happening with the postmodern takeover of law? When law and politics becomes indistinguishable, it is a frightening future politically for those under those who are ruling. If one can no longer cogently distinguish between impartial judgment, this is a great quote, if one can no longer cogently distinguish between impartial judgment and lobbying, between dispassionate description and partisan propaganda, one can no longer make sense of the moral and intellectual ideals on which a society is based. He goes on, what we seek at work, what we see at work throughout is a deliberate attempt to supplant reason with rhetoric. Now guys, some of our best politicians are great rhetoricians. Lousy at reason. Our former president before this one was one of them. Truth by persuasion, using the simple device of denying that there is any essential distinction to be made between them. This would be troubling enough if confined to literary texts. When extended to legal texts and basic political concepts such as justice, it's nothing short of disastrous. Roger Kimball said that. So I don't think America will be America. And I, I'm not saying that out of doom and dread. I just, America is not what it was founded on. And I'm speaking in a societal sense. We've just seen those who are in power politically now do not believe the language of this. And this upholds our form of law and government. I don't think America is going to be the America we knew. I think it's too late. And I partly think that, not partly, Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter makes it clear. Ryan read that chapter last night. When people will not give God the glory and honor Him, what is He going to do? He will give them over to their debased thinking. And that's what's happening. And we'll destroy ourselves. As I said before, postmodernism is a diabolical, political, and philosophical, moral worldview. It has inherent in it principles, uh, its principles, the tools to destroy societies, which would create the right environment for a false prophet and a false savior to come to the rescue. You see what I mean by that? Paul talks about the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 being the man of what? Lawlessness. Now, it's not that he doesn't adhere to any law. He doesn't adhere to God's law, only his own, and he exalts himself as God. The world will be in a state, in my opinion, when Antichrist comes, where they need saving. And he'll rise to the top. And we'll put our hope in Him. I don't want you to think, however, I don't want this to come across this way, that if America does fall, that that will mark the coming of Antichrist. I'm not saying that. America might be one nation among many that have come and gone. 
It might mean that it's the end of the world. It might simply mean it's the end of America. Okay? So I'm not going to be one who says when America falls, that marks the end of the world. Nope. God's not a respecter of persons. However, postmodern, postmodernism creates the conditions, as best as I can tell, for a world government, a lawless, ruthless leader, to take the throne and crown himself as Savior. I think it's politically, philosophically, morally, the perfect recipe for that. So that's, in my opinion, what's next. Um, and I believe it's going to happen tomorrow around... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that's, that's postmodernism's view of law in a nutshell. With that, I'll invite Joseph up and close us out. Okay. Gee, thanks, Seth. Um, sometimes the truth hurts, right, guys? Um, but it's not hopeless. Um, and it's not hopeless because we know that there is a God who rules it all and that He is not surprised by any of this and that He does not hit any of this unprepared or unplanned for and that He still rules. Last night we left you with the thought that you should read your Bible as a Christian because it is a source of authority uh, from which our worldview is built, on which God's nature is revealed to us. Um, today I will leave you with this thought regarding postmodernism and the law. We have the unique privilege in our country of having an opportunity to influence the outcome of this process. And we have absolutely nobody to blame but ourselves for the state that things are in. And as long as we, the church, sit at home on election day, as long as we, the church, do not show up and put our name on the ballot to hold office, to pass laws, to reflect God's place in society and culture, we have nobody to blame but ourselves. Ryan and Seth, I want to thank you both very, very much again from the bottom of my heart for coming and for sharing. Um, we are already at 9 o'clock, um, so we are going to wrap up in prayer. I'm going to dismiss you folks home. Uh, I know there's kids that need to be taken and put in bed. Um, thank you very, very much for being here. Uh, we hope to do this event annually and to involve more and more churches and to do more to equip the church for the work of God's kingdom, because that is what we are called to. So let us pray together. Father God, once again, thank you for gathering us here and for meeting us in your house, filling us with your spirit and leading us in this time of teaching and of thought. Uh, may it be so much more than just ideas in our mind. Uh, may it be a conviction from your Holy Spirit that we would go and we would be a, a lamp that cannot be hidden and a light that shines in the darkness. We know that the darkness hates the light and it will attempt to snuff us out, but greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so we claim victory today in the name of Jesus. We ask that we would be subject to his authority and that he would give us boldness to speak your truth into the world around us and that we would not lose hope or lose heart for you have overcome the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray, amen.